you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. so much for the many truths that we have been studying in this chapter of Corinthians. So you're looking, Father, at the resurrection and what your word says concerning that, the promises you've given us, Father, that bring to us great comfort, that bring to us great confidence, not only confidence in you and confidence in your promises, but the confidence, Father, that's needed to, to live life here to the fullest, to seek to accomplish your will in our lives. Father, we ask that we would continue to be encouraged by the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, again, just for its, uh, both its simplicity and its depth. We thank you, Lord, that it is able to answer all of the questions that, that linger, those things that nag us. We thank you, Father, for the sure and found foundation that we have in your word. And so, Lord, as always, we ask that you would continue to bless us as we study your word. We do thank you for it. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Again, let me just kind of give you a simple reminder about the first phrase of verse 56, where he mentions that the sting of death is sin. You know, sometimes there can be something that we're very familiar with. You know, this passage is read a great deal around funerals at some point during that time. Uh, we've heard it a lot, and sometimes we think that the meaning of the verse is obvious until someone comes along and says, what does that mean? And then you're trying to explain it, and you're kind of like, well, uh, and you're kind of stuck. So what I wanted to uh, kind of give you was a, a real quick reminder of what Paul is meaning when he says this. When he says the sting of death is sin. Because death is coming to everyone. There's nothing we can do about death. What is it about death that causes us to be uncomfortable? What is the pain that death brings? And so the main thing is he's been talking about the resurrection, which obviously we're believers. Uh, we're grateful for that. It's kind of like this pause and this reminder that the sting of death uh, is sin. Why is that? Well, because when the unbeliever dies, that then brings them into what? Judgment. They're going to be judged for their sin. That brings them to really, uh, in essence, the fires of hell. It's not a good thing. That, that, that's a dread of, of death, as well as separation from those that we love and care for. For the believer, all of that is gone. That's why that question was raised earlier. Oh, death, where's your sting? Because it's gone. Because of the resurrection, because of the truth of the word of God and what he tells us about what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross, for those of us who believe, that doesn't exist. There's not that, there's not that judgment for our sin. There's not that separation uh, from God. There's not that separation from our loved ones who are believers. All of that is, that, that's, that's history. We don't face that. So death may still be uncomfortable, but the sting of death is gone. 
And so that's what he then reminds him once again that the sting of death is sin. These verses here that he, that he mentions, uh, here in these verses in verses 56 to 58, there's an expanded discussion of this in Romans in chapter 7. Basically, again, as most of you are aware of, death came as a result of man's rebellion. Because of man falling into sin, there's death, and we have to face death. Death came as a result of, of man's rebellion, as a result of man's disobedience against God's command. The law then, which epitomizes the command of God, is the mirror against which human rebellion and disobedience are portrayed. We see the command of God, we see ourselves in this reflection, we see how far short we come. We see that we are definitely in disobedience and that man is deserving of these things. So like the first Adam, all who followed him rebelled. But again, as the emphasis has been, through the obedience of the last Adam, which is Jesus Christ, comes victory and life. So what we have here kind of is a, is a summary as Paul is, is concluding. Douglas Moo says this, just as Judaism often linked failure to believe in the future world with immoral living and faith in future judgment with perseverance, Paul encourages believers to hold to the truth of the resurrection and so to right living. The idea here, and we'll end with this as well, is that all this information that we're given about the resurrection, it is very comforting. And it is to be comforting to us. But that's not all that it is. If we only look at 1 Corinthians 15, it says, ah, now I can rest easy because I, I now understand all that Paul means, all that God has done for us. And, and you know, I can rest easy because of the resurrection. And that's good that we experience that. But it's not to end there. The idea here is that this is to have an impact on our living. This is have to have an impact on the way that we are thinking, on the way that we act, on the decisions that we make. This is to have an impact on our confidence and really, I guess you would say, on our bravery to do those things that, that need to be done because that gives to us the confidence. We know that this is not all there is. We know that all those things that are going on here, it's going to pass away. So if I am going to, to live for the Lord and do these things that God wants me to do, if I am mocked by others, that mockery will be short-lived. If I'm going to be persecuted by others, that persecution is going to be short-lived. There's, there's an end to all of those negative things. Because if I die, I'm ushered into the immediate presence of the Lord, where, where there is happiness and comfort. Or if I last until the Lord returns, again, all those things end. And they're over with. And I'm, I'm with the Lord. And so that's what he is stressing here for them. So this is not just information so that we can be then be content within ourselves and remain by ourselves so to speak and go our own direction in verse 58 where he says therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the lord many commentators have described this as as paul's hymn of praise to the lord as well as a closing admonition to the church because of the assurance of christ's victory over death we know that nothing we do for him will ever be wasted or lost. So we can be steadfast in our service. We can be unmovable in our suffering. We can be abounding in ministry to others. Because again, we know that our labor is not in vain. See, God understands us because he created us. And what he knows about human beings is that we don't like, to, we don't like busy work. We don't want to be doing something just to be doing something. 
We consider that a waste of time. I don't know if you've ever gotten in trouble in school, but there are some times when a, when a teacher would give you extra work. They weren't going to grade it. It didn't count for your grade, but you had to do it because either you were talking or something. Not that I've ever experienced that, but yeah. I've had a lot of busy work in my life <laughs> when I was in school. And it's just, it just makes it worse, even if it's easy. It's almost, you know, even if the teacher says, now I never had to do this, where a teacher would say, write 100 times, I will not whatever. I mean, good grief. I mean, how many times can you, what, what's the purpose of that? It's to make you suffer. <laughs> so that whatever it is that you were doing, you won't do that again because you don't want to do this again because it's for nothing. I remember, I remember a couple of times some friends of mine had to do that. And then, of course, the teachers were so kind and gentle that when you would finish it, the teacher would get it to make sure it was written a hundred times. And then it was, threw it away. And, of course, you know, you think, who's that for? Well, it's for you. So we don't want, even when it comes to serving the Lord, I mean, we don't want to be for nothing. And here what he's reminding us that it's never, it's never in vain. Never in vain. The Lord is the one who is watching. The Lord is the one who is pleased. In fact, if you think about it, 1 Corinthians 15, and I read this in, in a couple of commentators where they just made this statement that, that 1 Corinthians 15 is the answer to the book of Ecclesiastes. When you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, which basically is, you know, vanity of all vanities, all is vanity. Well, it's not. Not in that sense. Because the Lord is aware. We've, we have had these discussions before. You know, the idea that if you do good, let's say as a believer you're doing good for uh, some, some, some individuals, and no one acknowledges it, let's say no one even knows you're doing it. The Lord is fully aware, and you will be rewarded for what you've done. It does not go unnoticed. In fact, it really shouldn't bother us if no one else notices. We're not, we should not be looking for the pat on the back. We should not be looking for the acknowledgement from the world. If the world acknowledges it, fine. If they don't, that's fine. But what matters is what does the Lord think? Is the Lord aware? Does the Lord know? And so what he's assuring us is that he does. Again, when he mentions about the sting of death in verse 56, the, the, the word sting there is it's a sharp point or a stimulus. It is this sting, sin, that produces death, that's for sure. There would be no death without sin. Paul is personifying the character of death, and it, and it, clearly, it is clearly sin that gives the enemy or gives strength to death. Leon Morris contends that it is not death specifically that is so harmful. Death has a sting because the wages of sin is death. In another passage, Paul speaks of death as a gain to believers since death takes the believer to the presence of the Lord. We spent several weeks discussing that. But a sinner must be reconciled to his creator through the death and resurrection of Jesus. If a condemned sinner does not believe in the gospel message, then he will inevitably, inevitably experience sin as the sting of death because he will face the Lord. There is going to be perfect justice. We've discussed before this idea that that there is this supposed conversation that Emmanuel Kant had, where he was asked the question, what is it that gives life meaning? And as he thought about it for a while, he said, well, the only thing that gives life meaning is perfect justice. And then ensues this discussion, this, I think it's an imaginary discussion, and that is, well, if it's perfect justice that gives life meaning, do we have perfect justice now? Well, the answer is no, there is 
no perfect justice now. So what must there be? What elements must exist for there to be perfect justice? And so if you go through his writings, what you discover is, well, first of all, you have to have life after death. There, if you don't have life after death, there will never be perfect justice. But it cannot only be life after death. When there's life after death, there has to be a judgment. There has to be a way to judge your life. But even if there is a, a, a judgment on your life, there has to be a judge who carries this out. But this judge, it, it's not just that he is aware of all that you've done, because perfect justice still doesn't exist. He must be all-knowing. There, there can be no deceiving the judge in this instance. There can be no getting away with things because the evidence wasn't discovered or presented. No, this judge, he knows it all. But he still must have one more thing. He must be omnipotent so that when he is ready to unleash the necessary punishment for the sin or for the wrongdoing, nothing should be able to stop him. There is no one to appeal to. There is no power that can mitigate or stop him from carrying this sentence out. When all those things are present, then perfect justice exists. Then it will matter. Everything that is done, good or bad, it will matter because it will all be brought into account. And so he said that, as, as he was talking, he says that is what gives life meaning, is perfect justice. And of course we have that in God. There is perfect justice. Remember that for the, for the believer, we do experience perfect justice in the form of God's mercy. Because remember, our sin is never just overlooked. Every bad thing we have ever done, ever will do, ever thought, has been judged by God. God never looks at us and somehow has overlooked or forgotten some sin that we've committed. God never looks at us and is somehow uh, ignorant of something wrong we've done because there's no evidence lying around. He knows full well all that we have done. So his forgiveness is complete in that sense. So perfect justice exists in God. And it will be meted out in that way. The power of sin, again, is found in the law of God, as he says, because Paul spoke of the law as being holy and just and good. It was Paul who said that he would not have known sin except through the law. Without the law, sin would have no power over humanity. Frederick Godet said this, The throne of death rests on two bases. Sin, which calls for a condemnation, and the law, which pronounces it. Consequently, it is on these two powers that the work of the deliverer bore. And so again, we are found guilty under the law of God. The law of God declares what is righteous and what is sin, and we come short of that. We don't meet that standard. Again, God is aware of that, and so God's law judges us. We are guilty. We all fall short. And again, as we have mentioned many times before, when Jesus died on the cross, he bore all of our sin. All of our guilt was placed on him. And so it is no small thing when we discuss the death of God, when we talk about our redemption. Again, the reason for the power of sin is that the law cannot offer salvation to mankind. The law of God is powerless in that sense. The law of God can save who? No one. Because the requirement of the law is, again, perfect obedience. In fact, the perfect obedience that the law demands is not just an outward obedience. It is an inward obedience. When you go through the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was, was speaking, he made it clear to them that it wasn't just the outward things that are judged by God as being wrong. It's the heart. Remember, he pronounces them 
guilty of all of these things. Remember the idea with, with the adulterer that we've heard many, many times is it's not just the individual who's committed adultery that's an adulterer. Jesus then mentions those who had lust in the heart for another. And again, remember that the wording there is not you're just as bad as an adulterer. No, he just says you are one. It's, it's, it's an incredible standard. And, and the idea there that we should immediately glean from this is that no one then is exempt. Who, who do we know that has lived a perfect life, not only outwardly, but inwardly as well, has never had any contempt for anyone else? An individual who's, who's never had any uh, bad feeling or maybe judgmental attitude towards another. No one has ever existed except for Christ himself. And so all are guilty before him. <laughs> The law sets forth God's standard of righteousness. In the Greek language, the, one of the words for sin simply means to miss the mark. In classical Greek, the archer who failed to hit the bullseye uh, in their target, they used the word harmatia. God's target, again, is perfection. But again, sin prevents mankind from meeting God's holy standard. Again, that's why it's such foolishness when an individual says, well, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm going to make it. You know, I remember that, you know, at this point in my life, you know, I had gone through some bad things, made some bad decisions, and I realized that I needed to do good. And then from that point forward, I decided that I was going to, to do what was right. And so I'm hoping that my good actions outweigh my bad. But you realized it too late. If you're hoping that your good's going to outweigh your bad, it's already too late because it's not about that. It's about having no bad not more good than bad, no bad, zero. And of course, the other thing that's been bantered around for a long time is where is it written so that we can understand the ratio of how many good deeds must you do to make up for one sin? It's because it's not in the Bible. Who are we to assume it's a one-to-one -one ratio? Is it a one-to-one -one ratio? Most of us most of us just naturally have this idea within us that even when it comes to the wrong that we do, some things are worse than others because they carry, they carry greater consequences. More people may be harmed by certain actions than by others. So certainly the ratio of good you have to do to make up for that bad thing would at least have to be a lot more than making up for the bad you've done that only hurt one person. And then, of course, how do you measure the hurt in that individual? How do you measure that offense? And then, of course, along with that, not only have we sinned against that individual, as the scripture makes clear, you've also sinned against God. How do you make up for sinning against an infinite being? It's an impossibility. And therefore, our need of Christ should be glaring, to say the least. So, because we are condemned, we are powerless over the effects of sin. And our only hope for deliverance from the body of death is found in our identification with the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so again, in verse 58, in light of all this incredible information we're given about the resurrection and what God is going to do for us, he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. And so here we have basically some instructions for daily living. There is a tenderness here because he does indicate by the words beloved brethren he's not scolding them when he says these things but what is interesting here is that he doesn't start talking about you and i just doing in general moral good 
He's not just speaking in general terms of, of certain things that we should be doing. His focus here is on the things that is the work of the Lord, the things that we ought to be doing for him. When he tells them, first of all, to be steadfast, the word is derived from the Greek word that is translated seat. In other words, the believers are to remain seated or settled and confident in the content of this revelation. So what he's just what he's just given to us here, what we have gone through over the past six weeks, we are to remain settled in that. We're not, allowed, we're not to allow that to be disturbed in any way. We are to remain solid and firm as, again, when one sits maybe confidently in a chair, that that chair will continue to support you. That's the idea there with that. So, again, this information that we're given in 1 Corinthians 15, it's not just supposed to be some kind of a passing fancy where you might even feel good for a while, but then a few years down the road, we begin to doubt again. Now, sometimes that takes place because of this, just so we recognize this. We can be assured of all the truth that we've covered. And you may today be solidly standing on everything that we've discussed in 1 Corinthians 15. And you may at this moment feel like you are not only firmly, but you are completely settled on those issues. But just so that you understand how, you know, the, so the various ways that our spirituality can work, so to speak. This can happen. So as you live your life, you are not careful in living your life for the Lord. You begin to get caught up in the things of the world, and you begin to drift from God. You begin to drift from the Word. You're no longer, it's not that you've engaged in any gross immorality, but you're not engaged in the Word as you were before. You're, you're not really interested in and, and yearning for Christian fellowship. Your, your time of prayer begins to fall off. So normally when those things happen, we would use phrases such as this, that you are, you are weaker in the faith. And you are. And so when you get weaker in the faith, what happens automatically is, is your confidence in the Lord and your confidence in Scripture is going to begin to wane a little bit. You're not going to begin to live in absolute unbelief. I guess that's a possibility, but most aren't going to live in absolute unbelief. But then when you begin to face various crises in your life, there's going to be that sense of uncertainty. You're going to be unsure of yourself, unsure of your faith, because you're unsure of the one that your faith is in. You might be trying to remember knowing that you should somehow know better or that there's some information that you, you know you had that you had confidence before and now you don't have it. And now you begin to worry and you begin to fret. You start to become maybe a little more irritable. Maybe begin to think that somehow Christianity now suddenly doesn't work. And there could be a, a, a multiple uh, number of responses we can have to that. So we can lose our confidence in the Bible. Our faith can become weakened. It's not that, that somehow we're trying to keep it afloat magically because we're believing in things that aren't true or that we're only believing in legends. No, these things have been proven to us. We've built a solid case. Paul has established these things as being true that we can stand on and that are firm. But, as, but if we drift, when, when that takes place, that is at least one of the reasons why there seems to be a, a growing number of believers who are kind of adrift when it comes to times of difficulty, when there's, when there's times that are alarming, where, where there begins to be a panic, when we're suddenly facing some kind of disease, or 
as we are today, some kind of virus or cancer or anything else. It, it doesn't mean that we won't have any apprehension. It's, it's not that we cease to be human. But our confidence in the Lord is no longer our support. The comfort of God that we've experienced before seems to be aloof. We, we can't grab it. It's because of this drift that we've had. Similar to, the, you know, when you, when you get in good shape, and then you begin to enjoy all those things you had cut out of your diet before, like apple pie and ice cream. And having it once in a while isn't bad. Then you start to have ice cream every night. Now, I don't do that. I, I do have a, my brother-in-law does that, but he's thin. I, I could do that, but I would need a new suit soon. And the idea is that you can just, you can drift a little bit in the beginning, and the next thing you know, you're, you, you know, you say, well, I know I need to lose five pounds. I haven't been very disciplined. Well, I know I need to lose 10 pounds. I haven't been very disciplined. And then pretty soon you don't even discuss it, because it's 30 pounds, and it's like, okay, you know, we need to start all over again. So when we drift as Christians, it can take place where it seems to be subtle, and then all of a sudden you are aware that you're, you have a big problem. And so... We should desire earnestly to carry this confidence and this sense of assuredness. This, when I say confidence, it's not self-confidence, but it's a confidence in the Lord and the truth of God. We, we want that to be kind of running through our veins. And the way that that, that, that that remains is by you and I continuing to feed on the Word of God. And if we do that, these things will remain. So we are to be steadfast. Again, believers are to be immovable. That would be immovable in your faith, regardless of the circumstances. The Christians or the Corinthians in Corinth were not to be disturbed or swayed in their faith, no matter what was happening. Leon Moore says this, the Corinthians were prone to fickleness, shifting without reason from one position to another. Let them get a firm grip on the truth of the resurrection, on God's final plan for all people and all things and they will not be so readily shaken. And so again, that's the idea there, being immovable in this way. Even say we can even call it being stubborn in a good way. But there are believers today who are like that, where some new thing comes along, or some new idea, or something that people are excited about, and we go this way, we go that way. And there was a time for a while, at least uh, uh, several years ago, and I'm sure it still happens now, I'm, just not, a, uh, I'm not aware of what the the new fads are. Uh, but, you know, there were the, the new books that were coming out. And people were jumping on board. They were all excited. Like, I don't know if you remember, but, you know, there was the big, huge stir about the prayer of Jabez. And everybody wanted to read the book, The Prayer of Jabez, and start, start declaring that because all these good and great things were going to come along. You know, and it, it, was, it was a very successful campaign as far as those who were trying to make money, you know, because they printed the, the Prayer of Jabez in hardback, and then it came in paperback, then there was a children's version. Then you could buy a mug that had the prayer of Jabez on it. And you could buy shirts, prayer of Jabez. And you could just go on and on, all these marketing things. And people were just buying them up and snatching them up. You know, and then there was some book about um, Jesus Calling. And that really, you know, made a lot of money for certain people. And not only could you buy that book in a hardback back in children's version, but you could even get a special hardback version, which I think was made from wood from Israel. I guess if the wood comes from Israel, that makes it more holy. I'm not sure, but that was the idea. And so you could buy that version of the book. And again, you get the mugs and the t-shirts and all the rest. 
And so that was the rage, you know, Jesus calling. And we, we were fickle. I guess we could discuss what we're looking for, but that's unnecessary. And Paul here tells him he doesn't want them. In fact, when you read through this in the Greek language, there's an emphasis here on, on urgency, on being steadfast, on being immovable, and always, as he mentions here, abounding in the work of the Lord. That's not a suggestion. Under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, believers are charged to be busy about the work of the Lord. That doesn't mean that you quit your job and you become a monk and all you do is, is talk to others about Jesus. You know, we, sometimes what happens is when it comes to certain things like this, we kind of exaggerate what's said and then we say, well, nobody can live that way and then we just ignore it. But the idea here is this is, to be, this is a guide to us. So as you live your life, as you perform your responsibilities at work, we are abounding in the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord is, is I'm an ambassador for Christ wherever I go. In all of my daily discussions, I may, just for the first time, meet Cole and not know if he's a believer or a non-believer. And we may have four or five or six conversations and it, just, and it doesn't come up. But if, as a believer, I should be asking the Lord to give me wisdom to be able to find ways so I can have a more meaningful conversation with him. I want to get to know him, absolutely. We want to get to know human beings. This isn't a fake thing. I'm not trying to sell him a car later. But I want him to know the truth. And so the idea is, is I want to be abounding in the work of the Lord, trying to find a way to introduce him to the gospel. Whether it's, it could be inviting him to church, it could be inviting him to an oyster roast, it could be he and I just having lunch and getting to know each other, and one day it comes out, he's having some problems, and I can say, well, I'll pray for you. And then that may lead to, uh, you know, discussing with him who I'm praying to, what I'm praying for, and it can go on from there. So there's, all, there's lots of ways to, to do these kinds of things. It, it, it might mean that you're volunteering at VBS. It might mean that you're volunteering to teach Sunday school or health ministry. That's part of that, but that's not all of it. It's in all of our interactions with everyone, and especially with your families, with your husband and your wife and your kids and your grandkids. So it's not that we're running around you know, holding up a 20-pound you know, silver cross. It's the idea we just, we just are to, to exude Christ wherever we go. We're, we're excited about the future. In the midst of all this mess that we're in now, you know, people have all their opinions about all the various reactions to COVID, and, you know, we all have our own ideas. You know, I got my own ideas, you got your own ideas. But in the midst of all of this, we don't need to become cynical. We have hope in Christ. That's a very real thing. It's not pretend. And if all of a sudden, if you and I are struck with COVID, it can mean all kinds of things. It's not necessarily a death sentence. It is for some, like any, any other you know, upper respiratory disease. How do we respond? Do we respond in sheer panic and fear? Again, I'm, I'm not going to be happy if I get COVID. I am going to do everything I can to fight it. But the bottom line is, is that the Lord is in charge. I'm not going to live foolishly. I'm going to respond appropriately. But there's just no, it's not like, oh, no, I have COVID. And then I'm, you know, I'm going to go on. If I, get, if I get deathly ill from it, then I certainly want people praying for me. I want to overcome it. But if I end up succumbing to it, you know, it really is okay. Whether I succumb to that or anything else, it's, it's okay. Because where is the sting of death? gone. 
If I succumb or you succumb, we're going to be with the Lord. It's going to be sad, absolutely. You leave your spouse behind, your kids behind, your grandkids behind. Nobody wants to do that. It'll be sad for them too. But for the believers, we don't despair like those who have no hope because someone dies of COVID. There doesn't need to be the panic and the, oh no, what do we do now? We, we would approach a COVID death like any other death. Unfortunate? Absolutely. Do we hate it? Yes. And we all look forward to the day when there will be no more death, there will be no more COVID. But that's how we are to respond. And so we live our life, again, seeking to abound in the work of the Lord. We are not to be inactive when it comes to our work of the Lord. Again, remember what he said in verses 51 and 52, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. What we all know is that when the, when the Lord returns, it's, it's gonna, when it comes, it's going to happen. There's not, there's not a whole lot of warning. There are signs and all that, but still, there's, there's not a whole lot of warning. It's going to happen. We need to be ready. And of course, as Jesus said, he, want, he was wondering, in a sense, is he going to find us faithful? We want to be found faithful. Again, when he tells us that he wants us to be abounding, the idea there is that we are to excel in the work of the Lord. And the reason, again, for this is because this labor is not in vain. What we do for the Lord has eternal reward. It is not ever going to be considered futile or meaningless. Christians do not need to face discouragement because their work is in the Lord. The Christian has great hope in Jesus Christ. All of mankind is condemned before God, but victory over the wages of sin is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone as, God's, as, as one Savior. He alone can provide the victory through either resurrection or translation. So again, the death and resurrection is to have a purifying effect on the body of Christ, since at any moment the church saints could be in his presence. That's what it says in 1 John 3, beginning in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope, this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. So the first thing is, is that when it comes to our daily living is the desire to be pure. Pure motives, pure lives, pure from cynicism, pure from judgmentalism, pure from those things. What is being stressed is that in this hope, is this, that this hope that we have in Christ, it serves as a continuous source of influence. We then purify ourselves or cause ourselves to be pure or we, we take care to be pure. The present tense of that is that this is a continuous activity. So we, we, we make and keep ourselves pure. But along with the desire to purify oneself, this should also cause Christians, that's us, to be active in fulfilling the Great Commission. Since Christ could come at any moment, certainly the church or we should be active in the work of the Lord so that when he returns to gather his church, we will not have any shame, but rather confidence because of a life lived in obedient, privileged service of the coming king. So again, 
It is our desire, and we want to be comforted by all this talk and evidence for the resurrection of Christ and our future resurrection. But also it should serve as a continuous source of influence in our life to live fearlessly for him, to do the work of the Lord that, the God, has called, that God has called you to do, and to do the work of the Lord that God, that God has called me, called me to do, and to do it fearlessly, and to do it in confidence. Because it matters what we do. It matters how we live. And we are able to do so without fear because the sting of death is no longer hanging over us. It is no longer a, a thing that can be used to move us to do wrong or evil. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you, Lord, for the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Father, though, through the last several weeks, many of us have been greatly comforted by the truth of your word. Fears relieved as a result. Our minds have been eased because of the things that we have learned and the things that we have discovered, the things that we've been reminded of. We thank you, Father, for all of that. We pray, Lord, that you would prevent us, Father, Father, from giving in to, I guess, the natural reaction, which is to then to rest in that. Not to rest it in the sense that we are to be immovable, for we are to rest in it in that way. But, Lord, where we tend to relax from the responsibilities that you've given us in life. Because we know that for us, in the end, all is well. But, Father, to recognize that part of your intent was not only to comfort our hearts in our time of trouble, but to motivate us now, to influence us, Father, to, to, to be about your business. Because there is a time coming, Father, when we will all be able to live really in ease, experiencing your presence, experiencing the life that you've promised us in great and overwhelming abundance. And Father, we look forward to that time. So Father, we pray that as you burn these truths deep into our hearts and minds, that again, that we will remember them. But also, Father, we ask that as this is done for us, that Lord, that, that we would think about them often and that it would motivate us, that it would move us, that Lord, you would influence us, that we would recognize the great sense of peace and contentment that we have, which comes because of the truth of the resurrection. And we ask, Lord, that it will be of great value in the lives of others. That, Lord, we'll be able to influence them for you. Whether it's to comfort other believers, to strengthen other believers, or to bring non-believers to an understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, Father, we thank you, Lord, for saving us. We thank you, Father, again, for the future that we all have in Christ. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.